Hey besties, it's Tina, Karen, and Jules here. Tools down, time to chat, work, life, well-being, and relationships. You're listening to Let's, Let's Take, Take It, it Offline. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Take It Offline podcast. It's Tina here, and we've got a very special guest today as part of our wellness series to talk about a topic that is really near and dear to my heart, but also becoming more and more topical within our friend groups, colleagues, and in general as well. So we've got Dr. Lisa Javonsky from In Life Psychology here today to talk about mental well-being and how to look after yourself mentally and also looking after each other as well. So before we start this podcast, make sure that if you enjoy the content, leave us a comment, a review, and also subscribe and share with your friends to help us spread the love and also the message and the insights we're getting out of our guest sessions. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful winter day. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. No, it's a, it's really great to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, for sure. Any day is a good day to talk about psychology and mental well-being. So a bit of background as well. I think we started talking about mental health and well-being rather early in the podcast because it's something that's quite important to me. A few years ago, I lost someone really close to me to suicide. And ever since then, I've tried to make an effort to really learn about it. And also I've gone through therapy myself. And so today we want to pick your brain about all things psychology. But I think just kind of take it back to the basics and understanding psychology 101, when to go see a psychologist and what sort of topics are key in terms of managing your anxiety, stress depression, while also performing in all other areas of life as well. So before we start, Lisa, would you be able to give us a bit of a background in terms of your how you got to psychology and to your current practice? So I'm a clinical psychologist and the director of my own practice in Bondi Junction. The practice is called Inlight Psychology. And it's been a passion of mine for as long as I can remember. I probably was into psychology before it was cool. So I realized what a psychologist was very young in my life. So probably from the age of maybe 12 or so, I decided that this was something that I wanted to pursue later in life. So I've kind of been on in tunnel vision ever since and just absolutely love psychology. I think anybody who knows me, knows mm-hmm. I live and breathe psychology, which might be a little bit annoying to some of my friends sometimes, but I, I think they like it more than they hate it. So it's probably a good thing overall. Yeah. So I've been building up this clinic for the last five years and it's really built into a really beautiful team now. And we all, I think, have very shared values and passion for psychology. I feel like I'm in a Yeah, really good place in my psychology career and really excited to actually share it with with everyone that I can and let everybody know what it's about and hopefully make it sound a lot less scary. If it still is sounding scary to some people, I hopefully will ease people into it as much as possible. Yeah, we're loving the passion already that you have for psychology. I'm curious, what made you so passionate or so curious about psychology at the age of 12? Because I think at that point in time, like I remember when I was 12, you know, in um, not so much in psychology, I don't think I, I got interested that early on. What got you into it? 
Yeah, I think I'm going to be very much the stereotype where they say that every psychologist has their own problems. So that's what gets them into psychology. Look, I'd say that, you know, at a young age, I was probably struggling a little bit just in terms of some social things at school. And I was exposed to the world of psychology. Mm. And to me at the time, it actually seemed quite magical. Maybe that's how it is for younger people. They're very, I guess, young children their minds are still very flexible. And so it can be, I guess, very effective if they find the right support, if they find the right help. So I found that it kind of really changed things around for me quite significantly in quite a short period of time. I will say that's not necessarily how it works for older people, but at least for younger people, that can be how it goes. So that was probably my first exposure to it. And seeing what it could do, I think I just really wanted to do the same as soon as I could. So that's kind of been my guiding force for a really long time. But I think as I grew older, I realized that it's just the way I think is so psychologically minded yeah. that I can't really imagine myself doing anything else at this point in time. You found your true calling and passion at a very young age, actually, which I think most people don't do until much later in life or ever. So very lucky. Well, just maybe to, just to get to know you a bit more and thank you again for sharing that story. I think the power of therapy and the three of us on the show, we've all gone through therapy ourselves and I think we all experience the life-changing effect of it and that's how we got to be so interested as well in this topic today. But just to get you to, you know, just loosen up the mood a little bit and get to know you better. We've got five fast questions that we ask our guests on every episode. And I will start with the first one. Would you rather a margarita or a gin and tonic? Well, gin and tonic, definitely. Oh, nice. Same. Yeah. I think Jaws is a margarita girl, but um, gin and tonic for me. Would you rather skiing holiday or beach holiday? Uh, definitely the beach. I cannot <laughs> stand the cold. Yeah. Same here. Oh, I think I would choose the beach every time. And then would you rather be able to speak every language or be able to talk to animals? Oh, that's an interesting one. I would actually say speak to animals. Yeah. I love animals. Sometimes I think my empathy for animals is even higher than for humans. So I would <laughs> love to be able to take that to the next level and actually find out what they what they think. Although yeah. I worry that it's a very boring answer from them. <laughs> yeah, what is going on in the head, right? I'm an animal lover too, um, Lisa. And uh, I, you know, if I get the chance, I can show you my little pup later. But if I could understand what he's trying to tell me every day, <laughs> that'll be awesome. <laughs> Mom, I'm hungry. I'm bored. <laughs> okay well the next one what's the one thing you can't live without oh oh that's hard <laughs> people I guess I think that would right. be my answer I mean maybe I don't know if that's an obvious answer for everyone but no I really like to be around people I love socializing I love interacting with people so yeah I don't think I could live without people yeah also cool. wouldn't have a job without that but <laughs> <laughs> that is so true all right, last one. What was the last thing that you Googled? Well, the, this is a boring answer. I was looking up uh, support services for and, and the NDIS, so okay. very related to work. <laughs> we've interviewed several lay health professionals and, the, and we've asked them the same question. And last Google has actually been very much related to yeah. the occupation. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know that you're in safe hands. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you wanted a more interesting answer, what I like to Google is I like to go on the subreddit, am I the asshole? <laughs> play the game of uh, did I get it right or wrong? And more than 50% of the time I get the answer. That's that's making me question my ethics as a psychologist. But I absolutely love the questions that come up there. They're wild and the answers are wild. I've, I've heard of that one, the am I the asshole one. Yeah. Um, and you just gave me a perfect idea for what I'm going to do this evening. So. Thanks. <laughs> I'm about to go on a very dark, deep hole of Reddit. <laughs> it's dangerous. Thank you for playing along. I think that was really interesting to get to know you a bit more. Um, now, just changing tact a bit and going through psychology 101, if you will. And I, I think it's so important. And the reason why we, we want to chat about mental health is that we all understand the importance of prevention rather than trying to find a solution or cure way too late. And, you know, how would you generally advise people around looking after their mental well-being and why and when would someone go to see a clinical psychologist? I think it's a really interesting question because the answer that I would give is one which would only really work in an ideal world where everyone could have equal access to mental health services. And I think that's kind of a really important point for us to start on, that I would advise people to kind of see a psychologist probably a lot sooner than they actually do in many cases. The way I kind of look at psychology, I understand that the majority of people come in when they've already started really going through something and often they've had other people kind of nudge them along and they're often in crisis when they first come in or they've been really struggling with something. And often that's actually the first time that they've seen a psychologist. And the kind of therapy that we would do at that stage looks very different to what it might look like later on down the track when things have kind of stabilized a little bit or if somebody actually came in a lot sooner before that crisis point actually hit. So in an ideal world, I would encourage everyone to see a psychologist. And that's not just me trying to make more money. I do actually think that people could really benefit from, I guess, building more of an understanding and more of an awareness of themselves and how they're affected by things in their day-to-day life. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? I would say that like, I, I actually went to my first psychology session because we were going to do this episode and I'd never been to psychology before, even though I'd, I've heard these two ladies talk about it. So I actually went to see one, not actually because I really needed to, mm-hmm. but I actually thought that coming out of the session that it was something I should have done a long time ago. So in my mind, I don't think that there's necessarily a right time, but I think that when you really do feel like you need to see one, that might be the right time, but also could be a bit late, like you could have gone a lot earlier. And that's kind of one of the things that I am encouraging a lot of my friends to do now. And I've actually loved it. I really like talking to my psychologist. And yeah, that's kind of what what are the learnings that I've had. I think my take is a little bit different. I've been on the psychologists, different types of therapists, whatever, bandwagon for a while. And I've had these are moments where I've been proactive, but then they didn't really get me anywhere. But then I've also gone when I've got an issue and I need help and I need the right tools. And that's when it's a bit more focused. So I'm kind of trying to find the right balance of proactiveness 
and before issues come up. So it's, I don't know, I find it quite difficult in that sense. That's really interesting because I was actually quite nervous before going for my first session and I actually asked a lot of people and friends around me for advice and actually a lot of people gave unsolicited advice as well. But one of the things they mentioned was it's really important to make sure you find someone that you vibe with or that you can actually feel connected with as well. And maybe that's what you're referring to, Jules, there. It's like you just want to find the right person for you. Yeah, and I've spoken about this in previous podcasts is sometimes you do have to speed date your psychologist to find the person that's going to really vibe with your experience and provide the right type of tools and advice for you. That's why they have their specialization, but that's probably another rabbit hole as well, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a few different points there. I think there's a lot of really interesting things to unpack. It's interesting because I've had clients come and see me where they've gone to see a different psychologist and they've told me that they went to the psychologist, they told them what they were going through and the psychologist said to them, oh, you're fine. You don't need therapy. Oh, no. I've always found that really interesting because I guess firstly, I just have never come from that place to begin with. I also think that sometimes people aren't going to share everything in session one and to assume that if somebody seems okay on the outside, they don't need therapy. I think that really, yeah, that really doesn't set them up very well and probably gives them quite a negative experience in psychology. I think like with everything else, there is going to be a big variation between different psychologists. Some psychologists have a much more kind of brief solution-focused approach and other psychologists work at a much deeper level and they want to really get to know the person, get to understand their personality, get to understand their context before they kind of go into strategy work. I probably fall more in that space of really wanting to understand the person quite holistically rather than understanding the person based on here's a list of symptoms where can I kind of group you into what diagnosis fits best for you and so that's where you might find that mismatch as well so if you're coming to a psychologist who maybe is very solution focused and you've come in more for self-development or even just trying to kind of build up a bit more of a foundation or a bit more resilience in advance they might not quite know what to do in that situation. And again, I'm hoping that is the minority of cases. But I think this is where, yes, getting a bit of a sense of what your psychologist's approach is can be helpful. I've seen, I think from myself, when I started therapy, it was probably more of the more like urgent matter, like you said, like some people wait way, way too late. I think at that point it was because of a stressor event in my life, but it's very different the approach that you have to take when there's something like an immediate threat to your mental well-being versus when you actually have that time to sit back and think and choose, you know, who you talk to. Do you have any sort of advice around when, like, what are some of the signs or signals that someone needs to start looking into going to see a therapist or psychologist? I mean, it's interesting because it's so many different things that we could be looking out for. So I think that it, again, depends a little bit on what your goals are in general. So, I mean, if we're talking about, for example, one category of problems, which maybe are more in the interpersonal space. So if you're kind of finding that you're really struggling with friends or with partners and there hasn't been anything major that's come up, but just 
you're feeling really unhappy in that space. So you're finding that you're getting into more conflict than maybe other people, or maybe you're noticing that you're getting more angry and frustrated with people. That could be a good time to come and talk to a psychologist rather than waiting until there's this big blow up. Another problem that you might be kind of looking out for is work stress. And there maybe some of the first signs that I'd be looking out for is how you're going in terms of your work-life balance and self-care. So if you're finding that you're working more and more hours at work and you're not really spending much time focusing on yourself and decompressing, those would be the kind of earliest signs that I'd be encouraging people to see a psychologist rather than waiting until you're at crisis point and really not feeling like you're able to cope. And yeah, I mean, I've got a lot to say about the client that comes in in crisis and how it can actually put them at a disadvantage when they're working with their psychologist as well, if you guys are interested in in hearing a bit more about that. Yeah, we could cover that a bit later, deep dive into it specifically. But when an individual is looking to seek help, and they haven't seen someone before, like what are the key differences between whether to go see a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, or a psychiatrist, or even psychotherapist is also an option. Like what are the key differences between them that will help determine who to see when? Yeah, it's actually really hard to actually make sense of it because we've got so many different labels, so many different words for it. So we've got psychologist, clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, therapist, counsellor. These are just some of the most common terms. So there's a lot of different words, a lot of different labels. So one way of kind of separating them first would be between the therapist and the psychiatrist. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. They've gone through the medical degree and they've specialized in psychiatry on top of their medical degree. Now, some psychiatrists do talk therapy, but psychiatrists can prescribe medication, which isn't something that any of the other therapists can do. So all the other therapists have a very different kind of degree. Then I guess the other side of things, if we look at therapists, they actually vary quite a bit in the kind of degrees or qualifications they get. So some People may have a degree that's undergraduate with training on top of that. Sometimes they've had postgraduate qualifications, but there's a difference between a clinical psychologist and a general psychologist in terms of the actual qualification. So the only people who can call themselves a clinical psychologist are people who have completed the postgraduate degree, and it's a very specific one. So it needs to be a master's or a doctor in clinical psychology. There's a lot of other postgraduate degrees, like a master's in professional psychology, for example, or forensic psychology or organizational psychology, org psych. But those people can't call themselves a clinical psychologist unless they've done the clinical psychology degree. All the others, all the other kinds of therapists, psychologists, psychotherapists, they really vary. So some of them will have qualifications very much on par with a clinical psychologist because so much of the experience that they gain is after the qualification. You know, once you've gotten that degree, that's step one. It's then about what you do with that degree and what kind of work you do outside of that. So it's very hard to determine who will be the best person for you. All right. Also, within psychology, I think there's just so many different approaches. Like I've come across like CBT, I've come across like exposure therapy, or like I've read about them. 
but can you just give us like a really quick rundown as to the differences between the different approaches within psychology? Yeah, there are a lot of different approaches. So some of the most common ones that many people have heard about might be things like CBT, schema, DBT and ACT. So I'll kind of very briefly review each one of them. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is often a very here and now approach. It is the first kind of approach that's taught to every clinical psychologist, but most clinical psychologists will expand far beyond this point. It does have the most empirical evidence behind it. But I will say that part of that reason, in my opinion, is because the way that this therapy approach is structured, it actually is the easiest to study in an experiment or using an experimental design. While a lot of the other approaches, they are actually much richer in a way. And because they're richer, there's so many more variables to actually look for. So it becomes much harder to actually study and work out what specifically about each part of this therapy works. So CBT is very much about reframing things and changing thoughts and changing behavior. Schema therapy is kind of a deeper version of CBT. So it's kind of the most natural extension of CBT. And it goes into core beliefs, core schemas. Are you guys familiar with schema therapy? Have you kind of looked into schemas before? No, but I feel like I need it. I've seen some things around core belief therapy. Mm, that's similar. So core belief therapy, it could be under CBT. So what I like about schema, and look, sometimes these things can get a little bit horoscopy, but I think they're a really good start, which is that schema therapy has essentially identified, I don't know how many schemas there are now. At some point, there were maybe 18 schemas. And essentially, each one of these schemas are kind of like a group of beliefs that are commonly held by a lot of different people. And these beliefs can impact them in day-to-day life. So for example, one schema can be unrelenting standards. Another schema can be defectiveness and shame. Another schema could be entitlement. So it's essentially a theme that describes a belief system, which I find is really helpful to kind of understand a person better as well. So there's a really interesting book called Reinventing Your Life. So it's a self-help book, but it essentially covers a lot of the most common schemas. And it's got a little bit of advice. It's got a little bit of tips on how to understand where you might have developed these beliefs and how they're affecting you. So this is, I think, a really valuable addition to therapy, something I kind of encourage any psychologist to have a good familiarity with. Amazing. Can I just ask a rogue question because I'm so curious? How much of psychology and how things affect you is nature versus nurture? How much of it is stuff from childhood versus live events and what's happening to you? Yeah. You know, I think that's the million dollar question. And I think it depends what your profession is. That will impact the answer as well. So, I mean, psychologists will want to believe that nurture has a lot to do with it because then we've got a lot more hope, don't we? But the psychiatrists might want to believe that it's more nature because then they've got the biological kind of options. And really, of course, it's going to be a mixture of both. I think there is maybe a little bit too much emphasis on parenting effects on children at the moment. And the reason why I'll say this is because I'm finding that a lot of parents are really stressing out about damaging their children because there is so much pop psychology and there is so much focus on how the 
parent can mess up the child, that parents are actually becoming really fearful of their children's emotions, which is actually kind of having a a negative effect altogether. Because there's so much pressure now on parents to raise happy children, when their children are not happy, those parents can react in a way that almost reinforces some of those negative reactions to emotions because the children themselves become quite frightened by their parents' intolerance of the emotion. But the intolerance of the emotion is coming from a place of shame because they're so scared that their child is unhappy, that this creates kind of a very, very tricky situation. I think as a society, we've probably become maybe a bit too phobic of emotion, which again, I can go into a whole other discussion about this. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's a lot to kind of unpack in that space as well. Yeah, gosh, we can go off on a, so many different tangents there because if I think about my journey with psychologists, it's usually the first thing they ask as they go back to your childhood, right? In the first session and I'm like, oh, okay. But what we'll do is we'll move on to the next area because we do want to focus on stress, anxiety, and depression, because since really COVID, a lot of people have expressed where they are in terms of their mental well-being, whether that's work that's stressing them out, whether that's COVID in general, whether that's even social anxiety, a lot of things are popping up. But do you have any, I guess, particular, maybe top three items on how best to manage stress? when we're in a state where we are almost at the point of burnout and how we can actually take a step back and reevaluate and then manage or particular tools that help you manage those stressful scenarios? This is the question which actually creates so many more questions in itself. So it kind of comes back to that idea of when a person comes in crisis and they are often very stressed, very overwhelmed, and they really want some tips. They want some quick strategies. And this happens very often. And it's completely understandable. I mean, a person's been pushed to the edge of what they feel they can handle and they're desperate for some kind of answers. I don't know if you guys are going to like my answer, but I don't actually necessarily believe that quick fixes for stress exist. Sorry, TikTok. Uh, It's not going to be happy with me saying that. There are maybe little band-aid solutions. And I think they can work for some people who have maybe never even considered managing their stress before. And they come in for the first time and you give them some tips and they think, oh, wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. And there, there is definitely a group of clients who come in We talk about things and they feel a lot better after a few sessions. But I will say that a lot of people do not come to a psychologist without having tried a bunch of things first. And often the things that people are frustrated with when they see a psychologist is that the psychologist suggests things to them that seem obvious. So for example, one of the most common things I hear is somebody who comes in for depression and their psychologist tells them, well, here's the cycle of depression, which is very real. You have low energy. It's harder to get up and go. So we need to break out of the cycle. The way to break out of the cycle is you've got to go out and do more things. You've got to exercise. You've got to socialize. You've got to get out there. Yeah. But the client is coming because they can't do that. Hmm. If they could do that, they would have done that. A lot of times that's a very obvious answer for them. And so 
a lot of answers often feel like, oh, yeah, those are really great ideas. That makes complete intellectual sense, but you can't apply it. So I'm much more interested in what's preventing clients from doing the obvious rather than what are the obvious solutions that they've probably already considered. So if you were to ask me how I would address stress, for me, it's much more about trying to understand, well, what caused that stress to begin with? I could see 10 people with stress reactions in work, in their social life, wherever it might be. And the reasons for that stress is coming from completely different places. So for example, one person could be too giving. They've got really poor boundaries. They're too giving and they're getting more and more burnt out because they keep giving to everyone else. The next person might be stressed because they've got control issues. They don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to trust anyone else to do their work. And so they're getting burnt out because of that. Mm. You've got another situation where somebody might actually have maybe some narcissistic traits and they're feeling really stressed because everyone around them isn't meeting their needs or their entitlement that they have. And they're feeling really stressed. So if I was to give them strategies like, you know, do some deep breathing or, you know, have you tried not thinking in that way? I don't, I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's enough. So that's why I prefer to really dive under it. And that is why I think a client who comes in in distress and urgency, some of the times the first thing that we talk about is actually reducing that sense of urgency. So, okay, it is what it is. You are in this really stressed and distressed space. We can talk a little bit about things to lighten things, but the real solutions aren't going to come quickly. The real solutions come from understanding at a much deeper level how this person even got to this point in the first place. And those reasons are going to vary drastically from person to person. I love what you're saying here, Lisa, because so often they're not. You go to a psychologist and they actually don't delve deeper. They don't mm. try to understand what's causing those things that are essentially providing you with the stress or the anxiety, etc. They just go, okay, here are a couple of various different tools that you can try at home, meditation, breathing exercises, the four boxes. Yes. I'm sure you've heard about that before. And it's like, you kind of go away thinking, I didn't really want to come to see a psychologist so that they could tell me how to breathe. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. So much of what you said made so much sense. And I can see that even within myself and sometimes in a friend or in a colleague and it's quite abrasive to say I think you should go see a psychologist when you start to see those signs in those around you that those that you really really care about and want to make sure that they have a long-term sort of strategy to manage those aspects in their life how would you approach that conversation yeah, look, I think it's really tricky as well because it depends on what the other person's belief system is around psychology. Some people are quite open to seeing a psychologist and if you bring it up with them, they're quite open to having that discussion, but then they've probably already thought about it. The ones where you kind of feel like you need to nudge them along, they might be experiencing shame or, again, it kind of comes back to who they are as a person. So some people are very strongly attached to the idea of being independent and not asking for help. And so if you suggest to them to see a psychologist, that could really affect their sense of self and their identity. You've got other people who don't want to see a psychologist because they think their problems aren't bad enough. 
And these are the kinds of people who maybe have more of a guilt complex and tend to feel like they take too much already. They ask for too much. And so for them, it's really hard to see a psychologist because they're afraid they're going to take a spot from someone else who needs it more. And sometimes I'll have these kinds of discussions early on with the clients just to see how they're actually feeling about therapy. So I think if you're going to be talking to a friend about therapy, you could try to get a little bit more of a sense of just who they are as a person. What do you think might actually be making it hard for this person to see a psychologist? And then opening up the discussion in that space. The other thing I guess you could also do is if you've had your own experiences with therapy, being really open about your experiences and hopefully there's enough of a positive experience in there that you can share with them can be really encouraging because for other people, they might just not know anyone else has been to a therapist. And the more you normalize the idea of going to a therapist, the more you talk about it as if it is, and it is, of course, okay the more likely that other person will start feeling more okay with that idea as well. I feel like also sometimes it might be um cultural element to that too, a lot of deep-rooted values and beliefs within cultural systems about whether you should suffer in silence and self-solve or actually is it time to go see like a professional for help. But even before taking that step, Oftentimes, like finding an outlet within a friend or a colleague or someone you can talk to could actually be, I think, quite helpful. So for those that are probably not at that step of wanting to go see someone yet or are nervous about taking that first step, is there any advice that you would give for those that are supporting someone going through a tough time, like how to approach having those conversations like not coming from the angle of like you need help, but like, and you should see someone, but are there mechanisms that we can deploy and use to help a friend or colleague in need? I guess that depends on whether you're wanting to take more of a therapist role yourself with those friends Mm. and whether you have healthy boundaries in that space. I think it's really important, of course, to be really supportive and open and help your friends as much as possible. But the thing that I would kind of advise first is making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And there've been too many instances where people have gotten so over-involved in their friends' mental health issues that it ends up being probably quite problematic for both of them. Because the difference between a friend and a psychologist is a friend can get very emotionally invested in that friend and their outcomes. And if the friend becomes more distressed, then the person trying to take care of them can also become more distressed and maybe even more frustrated. They might feel like, oh, we've had this conversation multiple times. Why isn't this person taking my advice? And I guess the advantage of actually seeing a psychologist in that space is that the psychologist isn't going to be tipped off balance seeing that person. They're going to be kind of really okay with the whatever pace that person needs to go at and if that person needs to repeat themselves or if they need to have the same conversation a few times they're really okay with that so I think my answer is be there for your friends but don't overstep the boundaries of your friendship either that's fantastic Lisa I have so many friends where I mean look not everyone is probably going to be as blunt as me I'm a very blunt person but if they repeat the same thing over and over to me, I typically will say, hey, perhaps it's useful to go and talk to 
a psychologist that can give you the right tools to aid you in your thinking or change your particular behavior or try to get you out of this rut that you're in. Yeah. And I guess also being really mindful that your relationship is balanced as well. So of course, if your friend's going through a difficult time, you may be supporting them more in that situation. But just being mindful of those friendships where you maybe have a friend who is calling you up in distress or really kind of pushing your boundaries or asking for help from you at inappropriate times and just being really mindful of, again, you may not be able to get that friend to a psychologist, but it doesn't mean that you actually have to step into the role of a psychologist until that time. It's still important to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. But that's not me saying for people not to have conversations about mental health. I think that's super important. But I think there is a way to talk about mental health that's a little bit more grounded. It's honest. It's vulnerable. It's kind of a bit more calm in its nature. That's very different to a friend calling you up in distress multiple times a week, for example, in crisis or saying that they don't know how they're going to survive anymore. They don't know how they're going to live anymore. At that stage, that person really would benefit from seeing somebody professionally rather than leaning on a friend. Yeah, I definitely think it would be the extent of that crisis as well. So please don't take my advice, okay? I'm not a trained professional. Please seek help if required. I will move us on, Nia, to a um, a different topic now, and it's all about relationships. So one of the key things around psychology within relationships, one of the key things that's come up for me in the past is also the type of attachment styles and theories. I've also read a couple of different books about it and it's really interesting to learn your attachment style. I'm curious from your point of view from a relationship and obviously I'm not art seeking advice for myself here but generally (laughs) speaking what is your take on how you approach people with different attachment styles or couples therapy? Yeah This is one of my favorite topics, so I'm really glad you asked. I think we could talk about this one forever as well. Favorite too. (laughs) Yeah. So, look, I'll give you kind of a very basic idea, basic overview of what that's about, and then I'll just talk about the attachment styles and how you can kind of use them, how you can use your understanding of them to your advantage. So, essentially, researchers have been looking at the attachment between child and parent for quite a while. And they've more recently moved into looking at attachments between adults, because I guess they've realized that, of course, attachment begins and emerges in childhood, but it continues throughout life. And you can actually see some pretty interesting and similar patterns for a person as they kind of grow up and develop romantic relationships. But essentially, there's kind of two broad categories of attachment, which is secure and insecure attachment. And I will say that there is quite a bit of variation actually between childhood and adulthood. So it really depends on what sorts of experiences you have. So for some people, they have more traumatic experiences through life. For some people, they have more healing experiences. And also the type of person that you end up in a relationship with will also impact your attachment style. So it's not something that's set in stone, but people 
may have maybe more of a tendency to fall into secure or insecure attachments. And so I think this is really interesting to think about. And it's something that I'm always holding in mind when I see clients, when I meet them for the first time, especially because the attachment style that they tend to fall into is actually going to impact how they engage with me in therapy. And I'll kind of give you a few examples in a moment as well. But just very briefly, so we've got, we can put them into four categories. And so some of you might have read books like Attached or Wired for Love, and they talk about these four different attachment styles. So one way to think about it is a secure attachment style is when a person has a positive belief about themselves and about others. So they're confident in themselves, they're trusting of others, They believe in their relationships remaining stable. So they're not insecure about the relationship ending. They're not insecure about being abandoned or about people changing or about people rejecting them. So they generally just feel quite secure in that relationship. The insecure attachment styles look a little bit different. So we have the preoccupied, anxious, preoccupied attachment style. These people tend to have much higher views of others than themselves. So they tend to feel like they don't have as much to offer. They're the types of people who can feel much more anxious in a relationship. They fear being abandoned and rejected because they think they're worse than the other person or they have less to offer. So if we think about it as a power imbalance, people with an anxious, preoccupied attachment style tend to put themselves down and put their partners on a pedestal. And that creates this real insecurity and creates an anxiety in them that their partner might leave them, that their partner might move on or dislike them. We've got this other attachment style, which is the avoidant, avoidant dismissive attachment style. And this one, look, I'm not entirely sure that they've described these guys in the best way. And I say guys, of course, not just guys. But if any of you have read the book Attached, it completely rips into the avoidant attachment style. It demonizes them. And I don't think that's helpful either, because I think these people are actually very fearful of intimacy and vulnerability. While they describe them as people who have much higher views of themselves than other people, I do actually think that they often are too afraid to let their walls down. So they have to be above people. They have to have more power than them because they're so fearful of actually being equal to someone and opening themselves up and getting hurt. They might not say that. They might say, no, I'm not afraid of anything. But I think they're actually very disconnected from a lot of their basic attachment needs. And so that's why they can be quite avoidant of relationships. They can be quite rejecting of people. They can act like they're way better than other people. So that's kind of the avoidant attachment style. And then we've got the last one, which is the the anxious avoidant. I'm going to call them that. There's a whole bunch of different different labels for them, but they're essentially people who have a very kind of unstable view of themselves and of others. So one moment they can really want closeness and they really like someone and the next minute they hate them and they don't want to get anywhere near them. And these people have often been through quite significant relational trauma where they've experienced wounds in closeness and vulnerability. They've experienced wounds in abandonment and separateness, and they just can't find a place within that. They're constantly fearful of getting hurt and of being abandoned. So it's a very difficult, uh, difficult space to be in. That's probably the quickest overview I can give you. Who needs to read Attach? We've just had the... Yeah. I was just about to say, I do have a question around these like attachment style labels. Is it possible for an individual to be 
like a different attachment style depending on who they're with in the relationship. Absolutely. And yeah, there's quite a bit of movement in that still. So look, I think it's more important to just be aware of those kinds of attachment styles to use them as a guide for your own self-reflection. But of course, it's really worth thinking about what you're like generally, if you're kind of noticing a pattern or if actually you know that you're generally secure and suddenly you're getting triggered into more of an anxious attachment style, that could be really interesting to think about. It might be that the person you're with might be triggering more of that. That's so interesting because I was having a conversation with a friend on this topic specifically, and they were saying that they're acting a completely or feeling a completely different way when now that they're with someone else. So so I was really curious to see if you could be fluid between the different labels. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in general, everyone wants to move towards being more secure. How do you do that? (laughs) for a friend. (laughs) I will challenge that. I don't think people necessarily want to be secure. I think intellectually they do. But the thing is that sometimes when I talk to my clients about them being, let's say, maybe more in that anxious, preoccupied attachment, they talk about how much of a thrill they get out of the mysterious person, the person who's a bit avoidant, the person who maybe feels like a bit of a project for them, or maybe they're going to be special if they can get their attention and their love. And there's just so much more intensity. And actually, in a way, it mimics a little bit more of that Hollywood movie where you're chasing someone who doesn't want you, and then they finally want you, and you come together and you kiss, and it's amazing. In reality, what happens is the next day, the person decides, actually, I don't want this. Never mind. (laughs) And leave. But we never get to see the day after the Hollywood ending. But Often when people try to move out of some of these states, I find that they say things like, oh, but, you know, those secure people, they're just so boring. They just feel so boring. I'm not attracted to it. And what I would say to that is often we are pulled towards something that feels familiar to us. So if we haven't necessarily had secure attachments in our earlier lives, it can be a little bit harder to go in that direction. But also sometimes getting triggered in that way, getting triggered by, let's say, that avoidant character is not the same thing as love. That's your attachment style getting activated. That's maybe an old pattern, an old wound that's getting activated and you're feeling this intense desire to kind of finally repair that attachment wound through this person. And so sometimes it's actually about going against your instinct. It's not about speed dating. And I'll come back to that point about speed dating psychologists as well. But it's not about speed dating through a lot of different people, but it might be about looking for the signs of a healthy relationship or of a person who has a healthy way of relating to you and sticking it out and going to quite a few different dates with that person, even if they don't spark anything in you, even if they do seem a little bit boring, just to see something a little bit more solid and a little bit more meaningful can develop over time. Yeah, that's great advice. I think oftentimes we just write off the people who we think are boring, but maybe they're the healthiest. Because, yeah, especially if, as you said, if you're used to like a chaotic kind of dynamic in relationship with other people from childhood, yeah. it could be, um, yeah, I think people might try to recreate that somehow. <laughs> well, well, that's it. And that's where I'd kind of bring up that point around finding the right fit for yourself for a psychologist. And 
So sometimes the idea of kind of going speed dating through psychologists to find the right fit may not necessarily be the best thing because you may have a certain attachment style that is trying to bring out a certain kind of dynamic that may not necessarily be that healthy for you. Or if let's say you're more of an avoidant person in general, you might find that you see problems with many psychologists and none of them are good enough Mm -hmm. rather than maybe learning how to be in a relationship with someone who isn't perfect. Because there's actually a lot to learn from being in therapy with a psychologist who's imperfect. Because if they're perfect, they're going to be able to read your mind. They well, no, <laughs> not going to read your mind, but you know, they're going to be able to really understand you and attune to you, and they're going to be able to always kind of get what you're saying. And that's not going to teach you how to navigate situations outside of there, because people generally aren't that good at understanding each other. And we need to learn the skills of being able to say, "That's not what I meant." And actually, what I really want is this, rather than having a psychologist who gets you so well that you don't have to ever learn those sorts of skills. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting, like the parallel between dating and finding a therapist. But I think it makes a lot of sense because finding, like when you have a partner, like that partner kind of have to be your therapist sometimes. Mm. So yeah, it's really interesting parallels that you drew there. So we talked about attachment style and maybe being conscious about the initial phases of meeting someone and dating people. And what about when you move into more of a stable relationship and all relationships ebbs and flow and we might be going through a tough time, our partners might be going through a tough time and sometimes you drift apart and someone needs to go away to kind of do their own work to get better before they can come back into a healthy relationship. Do you have any advice for those sort of trust in the relationships and how you hold space for your partners in that situation? Yeah, I guess the situations there would be so different. I don't know if there's actually any kind of general advice that I would give because it would, again, really depend on what the situation is. But maybe what I would say is that in the vast majority of situations. And I'm not going to say all situations because of course there are some extreme and abusive situations out there. But in the vast majority of situations, there are two people contributing to an issue within a relationship. And it can look all sorts of different ways. So even for example, a power imbalance, let's say where one person has a lot more power in a relationship compared to the other person. Sometimes it's not even about the more powerful one taking power. It might be about the other person willingly giving that person that power. Even say putting your partner on a pedestal and wanting to do just whatever they want to do and always making time for them and maybe cancelling on your friends because you really want to make sure that you're there in case your partner needs you. That is an act where you are giving power to that other person in the relationship. So even in a situation that where it looks like actually the other person's got a lot more power and control, two people contributing to that. So I'd really kind of encourage people to think about how they're each contributing to this relationship, who they are as individuals, and what happens to them as they come together into a dynamic. Amazing. Yeah. You've just made me really think about my relationships just now. <laughs> You're like the whole time I've been thinking about my relationships. Like, yeah. Good reflection. Yeah. There's a lot to think about in this space. That's why I love it so much because it's so rich with so many different variables in them. There's nothing yet, almost no general information I can give you, but I can give you a lot of questions which will get you to think and come back with even more questions probably. Because you can go so specific, but then it's so 
different in terms of each person and how they approach things, their beliefs and their values, et cetera, right? So it's so hard. I can imagine it would be hard for, I could not do, or I could not be a psychologist. That's for sure. That's why I go to see one. But I've got a bit of a million dollar question here, Lisa. All right. Since COVID and from a frequent goer, if that's a term, I have found it really difficult to lock down a psychologist and their availability has been pretty tough. Two, three months in advance, you have to book them in. It's pretty crazy. Or they're not seeing new clients. They close their books and all that sort of stuff. Do you have any tips in terms of trying to find one or and or find available psychologists to see one? Yeah, that that is the million dollar question. I think it's actually changed quite a bit since the start of COVID. So when the COVID lockdowns happened and when the government allowed for the extension of the mental health treatment plan from 10 sessions to 20 sessions, this actually had a really big impact. And look, in some ways, I'd say it had a really positive impact. It was probably a time where I could actually do some really deep ongoing therapy with my clients without financial issues really ever becoming a problem. So mm. in that sense, it was great for the clients who were already booked in with a psychologist. But for those who weren't booked in, it became a lot harder because those psychologists were seeing their clients very regularly and were getting really good momentum with their clients. Since the government has cut back on sessions, now that it's back to 10 sessions, look, it's really unfortunate because there is now a significant proportion of the population that can't have ongoing, long-term, deep therapy. And they are essentially getting subpar therapy because they can only have that short-term focus. But I have found that there's been a lot more availability now. So I don't know if that's kind of, if you've looked quite recently, maybe in the last month or so, I've noticed there's been a bit of a pickup again in referrals, but I would say that many psychologists now have more space than they had in the last two years. So if someone listening tried during the middle of the COVID pandemic, tried in the last year and couldn't find a psychologist, I'd say try again. Now's a really good time to actually start looking for someone. Fantastic. That is positive news for those who are interested because I know I was trying, I think, earlier in the year and I had to wait like three months or I found somebody that I really liked their profile and essentially they were like, I'm not taking any new clients at the moment. So that's really good to know. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. I mean, that happens as well. Definitely the ones with the good profiles, they probably have been taken up, but also your GP may know who at the moment has space because I know that we're in regular contact with GPs around Bondi and I'm sure many other psychologists are. So the GPs get a lot of updates from psychologists about who's available. So the GP can give you a good referral from there as well. I have a question on the flip side, actually. Is there such a thing as too much therapy? Because I feel like a lot of us are seeing a lot of therapists and we're getting a lot more work, as the Gen Z would say, and we become very self-aware. And in a way, that can be paralyzing because then you get into this thing where like, oh, I'm just too scared to do anything wrong. Yeah. I'd say, again, it depends on the person. So for some people, too much therapy may not be a good thing. But again, it's more too much therapy with a psychologist who doesn't necessarily quite understand what the impact of therapy is having on that client. So for example, one thing that I really try to focus on is not creating an unhealthy dependency of the client towards myself or in general towards therapy. 
So if I have a client who really doesn't believe in themselves, sometimes, and I think a lot of psychologists can fall into this kind of, I guess, temptation. You see someone who seems really helpless and you think you've got all these things to offer them and help them and you do help them and then they're so grateful and they want to see you more and then you've got more answers. But what I'd kind of encourage people and psychologists to think about is what kind of dynamic are you forming in that space? Are you actually helping this person become more independent and more capable of coming up with their own solutions? Or are you actually just creating a really strongly dependent relationship where that client is constantly asking you for your advice? So if I've got a client who's saying, what do you think? What do you think I should do? Does that seem like something I should do and I notice that they're actually becoming more and more uncertain in themselves, then I know we're taking this in the wrong direction. They're using me as a guide rather than learning to believe in themselves. And that's not the same thing as me saying that people shouldn't depend on each other. I think it's really important for us to be able to depend on each other. I think, again, Western society is pushing for the idea of individualism way too much. It's not helpful. But if you've got someone who is very fearful of trusting themselves and is becoming more dependent on me, then there I'd be working much more on giving them a lot more confidence in themselves to be able to solve their own problems or make their own decisions and advocate for themselves rather than having me, for example, advocate for them. That's super insightful. I definitely think there is a big culture of saying that I'm going to go see my therapist or I've got a therapy session in the younger generations now as well, which is good, I think, because it becomes less stigmatized as well. I have thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation, definitely learned a lot. And just love to say thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lisa Shavonsky. I got it. You got it. And I hope our listeners, you also learned something new too, whether that's about seeking help the first time or thinking about which direction you want to take your therapy and self-learning journey to, or really hopefully it inspired someone to maybe seek help as well today. So thank you so much for your time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to like and subscribe, leave us a comment or send us a direct message too. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for your time. You've been listening to Let's Let's Take Take It it Offline. Offline.